This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. In today's episode, we were joined by one of our most remarkable and unique guests we've had yet to date. Uh, her name is Anna Davis, and she's a cyclist from uh, here in Australia, and she is the current uh, world record holder in the one-hour individual time trial on the track uh, in two age group categories, uh, the 50 to 54 age and the 55 to 59. She just broke her own world record last Friday. She has had four attempts at a one-hour world record and broken the world record every single time in her age group. But don't let the age group uh, category uh, um, make this feat any less because only one rider now in Australia has ever actually gone faster than her in one hour around the track. That is former elite professional cyclist Bridie O'Donnell. And she's currently ninth fastest in the world uh, of all age groups for one hour around the track. And as you'll hear in this story, her feats are absolutely incredible. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to say for her age at 57 years of age because she could be 28 and these feats would be absolutely incredible. Uh, but the fact that she's doing it at 57, uh, that does make it more remarkable. Um, yeah, today we got to speak to her and she is, uh, not only is she the um, world record holder for the one hour attempt, she also holds four uh, uh, world record titles uh, in, in Masters category, as well as eight national titles across uh, different events, in outdoor individual time trial, road races, crit races. Um, and attached to all these feats is a uh, very uh, modest, quiet, character in Anna Davis uh, and as you hear in the interview um, she uh, she doesn't uh, say any more words than she needs to but as a listener you want to pay attention to every single word that she says because uh, underneath that quiet modest resolve is a steely absolute uh, warrior and competitor and someone who you would not want to mess with on the track and it was such a fascinating interview today, Dad, wasn't it? And uh, we got such an insight into what it takes to be as successful as she's been. Yes, uh, her sing her single-mindedness, Jordan, is the one thing that uh, stands out to me, her willingness to do whatever it takes um, and her love for what she does. Uh, she absolutely loves doing it. She can't wait for the next training session. And th they're all the uh, ingredients for a successful athlete, no matter what sport you do. And she's come from horse riding background, windsurfing background, and she's only been riding a bike for seven years. Imagine if she started riding a bike when she was 20, she would have been the Mariana Voss of, of women's cycling. Um, I have no doubt. Uh, she has such an engine and, you know, she's beaten many males in individual time trials, including myself. And um, she caught my attention the very first time. She smashed me in one of the individual time trials outdoors and. I was just shaking my head saying, who is this woman? She is a demon of a rider. And and you go and talk to her and you, you just, you can't see that. It, she's so quiet. Uh, she's so humble, um, yet she has a fierce determination to put all of her actions out on the on, on the track, so to speak. So she doesn't leave anything, uh, you know, un, untouched. And um, oh, I just love talking to her because she's, uh, she's inspirational for but not only for older athletes who who wonder whether their their form's going to decline, and hers from 50 to 57 has got better. Um, 
you know, she, her first attempt at this was 43 k's an hour and now she, last Friday did 45 k's an hour plus. Um, think about that, that's, that's very fast riding. Um, I, I can't do 45 k's an hour for five minutes, never mind an hour. So putting that in perspective just gives you the listener an idea of the sort of caliber that uh, Anna Davis is as a, a world-class uh, cyclist and time trialist. And it's a real pleasure to have her on. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm really uh, grateful that she gave us her time and uh, was open and willing to, to share her secrets. Without further ado, here is Anna Davis uh, and uh, her story about uh, her world record feats. All right, Anna Davis, welcome very much to the episode. Uh, firstly, congratulations on a fourth world record that you just completed no less than six days ago. Thanks, Jordan. I'm really, really happy with that one. It's uh, Yeah, we're going to get right into it. It's really exciting for you. Uh, this is going to be a great episode because there's so much to explore with you and what you've been able to achieve. Uh, but the first question we want to ask, we ask all our guests is, uh, depending on their sport, what does cycling mean to you? It's fundamentally health. You know, that's that's the number one. Um, I came into the, the sport um, seven years ago for, for health reasons, and, and that's still the priority. Everything so above that is just a bonus. So you didn't cycle prior to seven years ago? No. That is amazing because... I, I came through a couple of other sports, and the other sports were fairly harsh on the body, and it got to the point where having had a lot of knee surgery, the surgeon sat me down and said, you have to take up golf or cycling. So cycling it was. <laughs> You're not a very good golfer by the sound of it. I wasn't ready for golf. <laughs> and look, just for the listeners, uh, Anna's also had a knee reconstruction um, prior to her latest. Um, how's that coming along? Not uh, really well. It's just um, a year and three months ago. And uh, apparently it's still improving, but um, it, it's, it feels really good now. So, what were the other sports? I'm curious. What were, what were you doing before cycling? Uh, sh- show jumping when I was up to about the age of 21 and, and then windsurfing. I travelled around the world uh, windsurfing for years. Well, that is the strangest combination to get to a bike rider of your well, talent. You think about it, they're all balanced sports. They're all individual sports. They're all power to, to weight sports. So there, there is a bit of a link there. So Dad, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came across Anna in cycling? Because I actually didn't know that about you. Anna. I, I thought you'd been in it for a long time, but that is such a short amount of time to have the amount of records that you have. Well, the first sort of recollection I have of Anna was when she beat me in time trial. That's when I first got, uh, first her, my attention was drawn to, wow, that's, I'm not big noting myself here, but um, a lot of I don't lose to a lot of uh, age group women, and um, and I know that Anna's beaten. I was talking to somebody else uh, about Anna, and they'd also lost to Anna in a time trial. So it's not like it's just a one-off thing. She's regularly uh, matching it with the guys in the masters category, and that's how good a time trial she is. And and I, I was always impressed with uh, the way she went about it. Her her maturity about her training and her uh, modesty. Uh, she never big noted herself. Um, you wouldn't have known uh, who she was because she just quietly went about her racing and obviously uh, she's a weapon on the bike and uh, the training and she just impressed me as a person. So um, yeah, I've always had a lot of time for Anna and have followed her results and couldn't be happier with uh, with what she's been doing in the last four years on the track in the 
in the her next chosen sort of uh, area of uh, of expertise. So, so let's go through it then, Anna. Um, take us back to the first time you decided you were going to have a crack at the one hour world record. Uh, what was the thought process behind that decision, and how did you go about it? Um, the the inspiration was really Brody O'Donnell having um, the same coach. We used to um, share a lot of the the same training, and and we'd be doing twenty minute tests at the same time. And we we're very competitive, and um, she she went out and rode an unbelievably impressive one hour record, which was then the world record. And I've always followed two steps behind Bridie, and I think I just fell into wanting to do that myself. They told the coach, and he just said, "Well, you'll have to go and find someone else." But uh, I eventually talked him round, and he helped me through that first world effort. And Bridie is. For those who haven't been watching any of the tours, is is a doctor and she's a competitive uh, cyclist. And uh, Anna's times are still in Australia. Only the only person who's faster than Anna is Bridie's time, which was done in two thousand and sixteen. Um, so that shows you how good an athlete um, Anna is. And uh, you always like to compare yourself to the very best. And and Bridie was the very best in the world, and and as a, an elite uh, cyclist, and Anna is doing pretty much as a as an age grouper. Um, and you got to be congratulated on that. That's just an incredible achievement. Is that something you're proud of? Yeah, very much. Yeah. So talk us through then. Uh, what are the requirements uh, to attempt a world record? What are all the, the hoops that you have to jump through to to make this happen? Well, there's there's quite a lot of administrative hoops that you jump through. Um, you have to liaise with your uh, Australia Oz Cycling and using them to um, get the go-ahead through the world body of the UCI. So a date has to be locked in three months ahead of time. Hmm. And as, as an age group um, competitor rather than a, an open world record, I don't have to go through a process of 12 months of drug testing. I only have to do a drug test on the day of, of um, a successful record. But then I guess the, the next serious hope is, is the training that's involved and, and that's, to me, was a 12-month project. And um, it, 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 the training after the knee reconstruction um, was at a point where I thought I, I was going to be in a position to, to better my own previous record, which was always the aim. So 12, 12 months just um, ramped ramped up. Um, it's a very slow ramp, and um, letting locking in the date three months ago um, that gave us then a final focus for the last three months of training. So it was your fourth attempt, um, and again, like you said, you're you're beating your own world record this time. Um, Twelve months out, where were you after your knee reconstruction, fitness wise? Um, how far back were you? Where were you starting from? I dropped a long, long way after the, the surgery and was allowed on the bike, of course, as the rehabilitation uh, um, a week and a half after surgery, you're back on the bike. Um, for, for three months, I wasn't allowed to push more than 100 watts. Wow. I wasn't allowed out off the trainer for four months. So at the four-month mark, I started to go to the road, and I think I competed at uh, Ballarat in the Masters time trial last year at, at the four-month mark. And I realised that my power actually was um, 
significantly good at that point. So COVID hit and uh, we sort of went into a bit of a COVID winter and we all stayed inside on our trainers and uh, um, power continued to climb. And um, I think about six months ago, I, I realised that my power was close to its its best ever that I'd had in the last well, my seven years of cycling. So it was, uh, I had to set a goal and given that there weren't a lot of events out, outside, I, I thought a, a realistic goal was to to do the hour record. Do you think that uh, the knee replacement had anything to do with you getting um, that recovery that you, you needed so you could almost start again? Do you think that played a significant positive role rather than a negative role? Yeah, very much. My ability to push power on the bike hadn't changed that much slightly for the better but my ability to do it more often was was definitely a lot better i could train more consistently there was less pain and there was less doubting myself that i was actually doing damage so psychologically i could push a lot harder as well and how much did you think the rest period contributed you to freshening up as a as we get older obviously the medical practice they're always telling us that you will decrease your ability as you get older and you are absolutely proving this to be not the case and just to give everybody an, an insight you your first effort was in 2017 uh, your second effort was 2018 then 2020 then 2021 is that correct your first uh, one yeah. yep yeah 17 18 20 and now 22 22 yep sorry um and your average speed in 2017 when you were literally four years younger was 43.2 something like that yeah and you just did last friday 45.3 four yeah. years older yeah um what do you put that down to uh, i think a lot of it is experience at the hour it's it's a very difficult event to get right there are so many factors that have to line up on the day and throughout the training um, not getting injured being the big one um, experience of riding on the track and getting the pacing is is quite quite a feat. Um, you, you're not allowed a Garmin on the day. You have to just go by lap times, and that's that's very difficult for someone really like yourself who stares at the power meter and rides to power every maybe four or five seconds. Have that taken away from you, you're literally blindfolded when you ride. So um, overcoming those hurdles was. Was something I think experience you, your line around the track, being able to hold the black line and not drift around too much, you certainly save a lot of time. I think also as you get older, there's um, there's an article re recently on Rafa Nadal why he was able to to win a tournament at his age, beating beating someone significantly younger, and they put it down to efficiency of movement. And I think as a cyclist, that's that's definitely what we're contending with also that i i've become more more efficient on the on the bike both in the power that i can put out but also my position on the bike the aerodynamics the um the, the knowledge of where to set my bike up to get the maximal performance out of myself well really want to dig into that a little bit more in the program um i i did sort of brush over the average speed for the for the majority of people who are listening 45.3 k's an hour is something that most people can hold for one lap and you did it for an hour which is how many laps by the way is is one hour 180 laps. 
So you can hold 45 plus k's an hour for 180 laps. And and mm-hmm. so that puts it in perspective. And if you've ever gone to the velodrome and try and do one lap at 45 k's an hour and see how you go, um, it, it is an enormously fast pace to be holding. Um, so I just want to get that out there to, to, for people to put it in perspective what Anna's actually doing. Um, and sure, the velodrome has some added things, in, in, you know, compared to the road. And I explain the difference between how you can ride on the road compared to in a velodrome. I think the, the main difference is out on the road, you get some rest. You, you're going up slight inclines, even if it's a flat course, or you're going into the wind, or you're getting a tailwind, and, and you're able to ride to those and get rest in, in periods where you have either a tailwind or, or going downhill. And the velodrome, it, it's not possible. It, it's a sustained effort that doesn't change. And I think, I think I've spent probably four years perfecting that, and that's also one of the reasons why I've been able to ride the record faster this time. So being, being able to uh, acknowledge that's going to happen and find a way of training to maximise that has been very important. When I, when I found out that you uh, had to do it without a bike computer, I, my jaw was on the floor because... I just thought you would be so dialed into your numbers um, and then to find out that you have not only no power, uh, no speed, but not even time. You can't even have oh, time yeah, you, in front of you. You, you have lap time. So you, you're allowed one person standing on the side of the track and they're allowed to report to you lap times. But even um, then, yeah, you're relying on that, that external voice to hear at every lap. Yeah, you, know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, you have to be extremely mental, mentally tough. Uh, so yes. yes. Talk to us a little bit about your mental toughness and the fact that you keep going back to it because it is as grueling as event as you could possibly imagine. And that's why training on the velodrome is so hard. Exactly what you're saying. There's no, there's no rest. You know, there's no respite. You just, you kind of cheat a little bit on the road with those, like you're saying, little bits of downhill, a little bit of uphill, a little bit of tailwind. Um, how mentally tough uh, do you have to be to get through this one hour? Um, it's probably, I think, 50% of the success is your ability to be able to withstand what you have to go through to do an hour. Um, I've, I've done four. Two of them have been what I, I consider successful. Two of them have been what I consider disasters in, in that I've gone out very um, at the pace that's needed and um, blown up but yet had to continue. And those have been what I describe as maybe the hardest things I've ever done because you can't stop, you can't let up, you can't complain to anybody. You're in this very lonely, solitary place and, and time goes incredibly slowly when you're suffering that amount. I actually have a, a, a training program to, to overcome two things. Um, one, one is the heat. You have to, because you're in a tucked position indoors, there's, there's um, the potential to, to overheat. So I, I do a lot of sauna training. And I go into a, a sauna at 85 degrees and, and I don't let myself out for 30 minutes. Mm. And you get to 20 minutes and you, you're quite desperate to escape, but you just say to yourself, no, I'm, I'm staying here for another 10 minutes. And you just you figure out ways of, of talking yourself through that. And I think that flows on to, to what you go through on the bike. And uh, that's been a very useful tool for me to go through that sauna training. As, re- as replicating... The experience on the track on race day, or you know, the world record attempt day, how significant is replicating that in training for you? Reasonably important. I, I never replicate 
uh, uh, 60 minutes. I, I, I work to 45 minutes instead of 60 because um, going from 45 to 60 is, is mind-breaking. And to do that too often, I, I think um, I, I'd run into a problem on the day that I'd go into such negative territory that it would be detrimental. So I, I tend to base my training around 45 minutes, which I know is sustainable and doable and still significantly worthwhile in terms of training load. And um, that was one of my strategies also to, to well, not do those 60-minute efforts. How, just for the listeners, tell us how often you would be doing those threshold efforts and were you sitting bang on the, the – obviously you, you had worked out the power that relates to the time per lap that you needed to do. How, many, how, how often would you be doing that in, in your build-up? Uh, once a week, I'd go to the velodrome and, and do my 45-minute effort initially. How, how many weeks did you do that prior to the event? Was that three um, months, six months? Twelve months. Twelve months of that. Yeah, well, actually, no, because it was interrupted by COVID. So it, was, yep. it, it should have been 12 months, but it wasn't. You're really just highlighting, and this is why I asked the question, the absolute uh, mental strength required and the gravity of the event uh, to go and do a 45-minute threshold effort um, every week for up to 12 months and obviously COVID um, interrupted that but we just spoke on the podcast last week about how grueling a threshold session is and how you probably can't do it week in week out yet you know, the person that can do it is you and that's why you're a world record holder um, and and the, the gravity of again I just can't get my head around you know not having that data and having to hear someone yell the lap time at you for 180 mm-hmm. laps in a row um, and to make that really clear there's a really small margin you're trying to hit every single lap. I think it was 19 to 20 seconds and the person's just yelling out if you're on track or not. Is that correct? Yeah. My, my threshold was 0.1 of a second per lap in, in terms of variation. Yeah. I, I was actually aiming for 20.2 and, and I came out on the day and the track was a little bit faster than, than expected and I felt a little bit better than expected and, and hence my lap average ended up to be 19.9. So I was trying to sit on 19.8. So to me, a lap that was blown out was 20.0 and I had to recover that and, and then uh, get my pace back on onto the 19.8, 19.9 threshold that was set. Um, and that was exhausting in, in itself because... Sometimes you just don't feel able to lift and, and yet you had to, to, to know that you're going to stay on target. You told me um, when we were discussing um, your success uh, just yesterday that you had attempted different styles of attacking the, you know, a, a different race plan. Um, you'd tried a little bit of over-under threshold where you would use the bends to get more speed into the straights to get recovery. Tell us about how you decided which method to use on, on the day. I and mean, you've tried both. Yeah. Well, t- taking that back even further, um, deciding um, to do 45-minute efforts instead of, and, and obviously they started off, my threshold was less than it ended up. So they started off at, at less power than they eventuated. Uh, rather than doing five minutes or, or 10 minutes or 20 minutes efforts and, and combining those with rest periods, I... I decided to go with a 45-minute block and, and be consistent with that. But then when you're actually riding the track, you can choose to ride at a sustained even power throughout the, the, the 250 metres of the velodrome or, or you can attack it in a way where you power through the, 
the corners and, and try and get some sort of three-second rest in the straight. Or you can try and accelerate through the straight in order to maintain your speed through the corners. And, and I've, I've played with all of those, um, even, even lifting up through the straight so that you drop down into the corner to, to, to make it more like a hill to get some extra speed. Um, I, I've played with all of those and to me um, I'm really good at just holding power. So my number one strategy was always going to be just to try and sit on a sustained power for the 250 metres and hopefully that I would last 60 minutes doing that. And, and it turned out on the day that, that I could. I couldn't always do that in training, but I had a very good day. The conditions you just mentioned, the track was faster. Tell us about what that, what's involved in those conditions. Well, basically you're pushing into even though it's not outdoors, you're still pushing into air and uh, the, the density of that air will determine whether it's considered a fast track. Um, three things determine the air, de- air density and that's the number one is the temperature of the velodrome, the higher, the faster, uh, the pressure of the air, the atmospheric pressure. Um, to 1,022 millibars is, is very heavy and slow in Melbourne. Occasionally you get a storm come through and it gets down to 1,000 millibars. That's very, very fast because the air has less particles that you have to push into. And the humidity, the, the same, that um, a higher humidity is, is faster. So the combination of those three, you can work out the air density and, and that will determine whether it's actually a little bit faster or a little bit slower on the day. So your strategy when you're planning out this event is the date of the calendar month is determined by a lot of those three things. So you wouldn't want to do that in Melbourne in June. No, obviously you, you're picking summer, but, but the determination of the date comes down to when, when are, when are your officials available? <laughs> They're doing lots of other tour down unders and, and nationals and lots of track meets and you have to get people who are fairly scarce resources and lock them into a date where they can all attend together and are willing to do so. So the date is actually more determined by the availability of, of the officials and the track. And ideally you, you do it through summer because it's, yes, it's going to be faster. Those three factors you mentioned, how much do they vary? I don't, I don't have no reference to those numbers. So 1,022 to 1,000, I think you said. What, how much yeah. difference does that make uh, in terms of how fast it is? Um, well, it could be after half half a second to lapse. So yeah, you hit a bad day. You you're pushing uphill basically. Yeah. 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 Are you, are you, do you consider going? If it's that bad, do you consider going? Well, there's no point attempting today because it's it's, it's just so extreme because you've locked it in. But <laughs> you've locked it in. You you um and, and you committed financially to paying the officials. Um, Have to. And you don't like letting people down, so you yeah. generally you, yeah. you go. Yeah. yeah. So you you get, the condition. You get on the sorry, Dad, you get in there on the day and measure measure those three things, and so you get yeah, yeah. Of, okay, yeah, yeah. And during your warm up, you've got your Garmin for your warm up, so you you look at the power and you look at the lap time that that's giving you, and and you've you've done the figures, you know what the air density is, and you can start to put all those factors together, and then then you'd make a decision on what gearing you were going to use. Um, if it was a horrendously slow day, I, I may have changed my gearing into something slightly smaller and that would be my only um, only out in in terms of atmospheric conditions. I'm sure a lot of the listeners would love to know what your cadence was for the hour. 
very, very slow. <laughs> You're pushing a bigger gear than normal? Yes. Um, I've always been a, a rider who likes to ride in, in grinding gears. And uh, it's, it's thought that 100 RPM is, is what you should be trying to, to replicate on, on, during an hour record. And to me, I, I'm not good at riding high cadence. It's, it's very tiring for me and my heart rate tends to go to extremes and therefore the overheating factor comes in as well. So I like to ride an enormous gear and slow my cadence down to uh, 90 RPM. And uh, I, I can push, I have the leg strength to push through that and keep a, a lower heart rate, which I find is, is more sustainable. That's great because for any of the listeners and our athletes are definitely guilty of this and, and me as well, uh, you say really low, uh, but for a lot of athletes, um, getting above 90 is, seems super yeah. fast. So uh, that is good to hear that um, you know, yeah. that is the goal. You should be getting up there and, and sitting low 80s is probably far too low for you in a time trial. Yeah. Well, track might be slightly different than being on the road as well. As you would say, Dad, though, for triathletes, it's the high cadence will help with the run after. So. Absolutely. You want to protect your legs as much as possible and grinding. And this is a completely different topic, but, you know, we were talking to Anna about the, the track and that, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued myself as to, because I've seen the elite males ride high cadence and uh, I don't look at 90 RPM as being a grinding gear. I think it's, you know, that's perfect for the age grouper because exactly what you just said, Anna, keeping your heart rate in control um, is really key to keeping your, your body temperature down and, and not really blowing up so you know mm. that's 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 a, a great way of uh and you've probably measured yourself over 100 rpm 95 rpm and and worked out what's what's more efficient for you and what is more sustainable so to, to get into good shape when you hit 45 minutes is, is key um higher higher cadence so i'm generally blown away at that point I did get to see some video, video footage and there is some on YouTube of some of your attempts and uh, it did look slow and when you said just then it was going to be a, a, a cadence-wise, not speed-wise, your speed, you were absolutely flying. But um, yeah. Cadence-wise, it did look slow and I, I did wonder when you said, um, yeah, you go for slow, I was expecting you to say something around maybe 80, but um, it didn't look like 90, so that's interesting. Although one of the funniest parts yeah. of the video for me, uh, maybe not so funny for you, is when you finished. Uh, you were absolutely exhausted, as you could expect. You barely could get off the bike, and um, uh, your partner came over, and you literally gave him a kiss, and then forwarded into the bin uh -huh. in the same second. <laughs> this is the uh, the the attempt before this one. Yeah, okay, yeah. This, I did, this I one, I, I I walked away quite with a smile on my face. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the two extremes. Yeah, yeah. Someone yeah. had so you're you're sitting there, and someone put a bin in front of you, and you went kiss, and then bang, straight into the bin. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, the next topic we want to explore is uh, the bike equipment. Um, yeah, you, you are clearly extremely thorough in all of this. And so talk us through the setup and the testing it takes to get that right and, and what you've manipulated. Um, starting with a basic track bike, I have the, the red Cervelo T4 and um, I put some ceramic bearings on that and I, I lengthened the cranks to, to 170 because I think it had 165 on it when I bought it. I bought some Mavic wheels, um, which probably the most important piece of the equipment. And the aero bars, the position of those, um, changing the angle is, is something I do quite frequently to, to try and the, the, the equation of, of trying to be 
um, aerodynamic versus trying to be comfortable, trying to be most powerful is is a it's it's like a three way um, wrestle and trying trying to maximise you, your final outcome is is dependent on where you you sit with aerodynamics versus comfort versus power. So I spent a lot of time adjusting the the, the head end of my bike, working out um, how low or how high to to place the bars. And eventually I, I had to come up much higher than I would on the road in a time trial because uh, I found if I was low down, I, I became too dizzy and nauseous and it also cut down the power, even though I was at my most aerodynamic. So you were going faster in a lower aggressive position, but you couldn't ride really as fast sustained that i that couldn't was, sustain it no that, that's the key key to the solution isn't it um, yeah. yeah so it's a compromise isn't it you've got to just yeah. find that happy medium what about your seat height did you did you play around much with lowering and, and raising a little a little not much um i've played around in the past with that mostly on the road bike and i tend to replicate my, my position on the road bike on, on the track bike as well um, obviously, you want to try and get the bulk of your body as low as possible, but it comes at a compromise. If you're bending your knees too much, you're probably not going to get be getting smooth pedalling or, or the greatest amount of power. So I, I tend to have found my seat height, and that tends to be a locked-in position. And uh, literally playing with the front end of the bike is is only something I would do now, leaving the seat height alone. Well, that's the be- that's the benefit of um, doing those grueling 45 minutes every single week is that you get to test this every single week you know, as mentally tough as that is and how brutal that sounds to the program uh you do get to make these slight adjustments and i guess you're testing literally week to week about uh what's different yeah and what's fast exactly you mentioned uh that you spent a lot of time um adjusting to the heat with, with some training in the sauna tell me a little bit about your altitude uh, preparation uh, I, I set up a, an altitude tent at home and back at the 12-month mark, I was doing weekly sessions in the altitude tent. Um, if you read the literature, it's probably advisable to be sleeping in an altitude tent for longer periods of time in order to get the best adaptation out of altitude. But that wasn't something I was prepared to do. So I used it initially as a, um, a cardiovascular training, if you like, because um, training it I was going about 3,000 metres, 3,300 metres of altitude where your power is drastically reduced. And that was effectively taking the load off my legs when they needed recovery from the surgery. So I was I was training my cardiovascular system beyond where I would have been able to had I had um, legs that hadn't come through surgery. So uh, I continued doing that once a week. And uh, I, I used it as, as a recovery session for my legs. And, of course, uh, you were overheating in there and, and your, your heart rate was about 20 beats a minute higher than it would have been outside of the, the altitude. So just, just another one, a, a way of, of varying the, the training and uh, adding that little bit more, I think, to, to what you could do day in, day out, otherwise just on a trainer. Do you have, Dad, any more questions about uh, equipment or aerodynamics? Because I want to chat a little bit more about the training. Yes, uh, just just finishing off um, the helmet, the skin suit. 
um, the wheels, the tires, the gearing, they all play a little bit of a role, don't they? And uh, what's the what's the order of of priority? Well, I think the wheels were um, very important. You had to, you know, but once, of course, once you purchase those, then you take that out of the equation. And the things you can play with with uh, the the aero helmet. But again, you know, it's a significant investment buying an aero helmet, and I tend to to buy that and then. Uh, not look elsewhere for something that might be considered faster. So I've actually got an aero helmet that makes a lot of noise and I find that quite good because the lower I've got my head, the less noise it's making. So it's a nice little reminder also that my head's not in the right position when it starts um, screaming and whistling at me, if you like. <laughs> so, yes, uh, all, all those aerodynamic um, factors are, are, are very important, but I think fundamentally your head position overrides anything that you can buy or, or play with on the bike. Yeah, the body position, that, that's a, I'm so happy you've said that because the, the things that I mentioned, you know, the, the wheels, the suit, the helmet, the tyres, the, the gearing, they are all important. We're not dismissing that, but if you don't get your body in the right position, um, you've just wasted all that all that effort. Um, Absolutely. And you know, just putting you know, the significance of dropping your head slightly can be the, the dif- difference between point one or point two per lap, can't it? Oh, possibly more. Possibly more. Yeah. Yeah. But also being able to ride in that position, uh, if you drop your head too low, it might cause you to be veering around and, and not holding a straight line so you've probably lost that advantage but fundamentally i i still maintain that your, your head position is is key for aerodynamics so i'm super curious to know uh what what was the rest of your week like uh based around that that 45 minute threshold session uh, when, when would you do that would you do that on a weekend or it was locked in friday morning um we had a, a an ongoing booking at the velodrome on a Friday morning, so that that was um, that was locked in. Mm-hmm. I had another session that was locked in on a Tuesday, which was also a second threshold session, and everything beyond that was um, entirely how I felt. So feeling good, I would maybe have even five really hard sessions a week on a good week. Other other weeks it would be just down to two. I, I tended to ride seven days a week. If I don't ride every day, my knee gets swollen and I get very sore. So I found even riding the bike was better than having a day off in terms of recovery. Um, so give, give, me, give me an example of, of, of that, a week where you had five hard sessions. What would that be made up of? Um, because I was, I was trying to do these 45-minute sessions, I would do maybe uh, a session on the velodrome at 45, um, a session on a, on a um, maybe doing a 40-minute effort at, at over threshold if I could even, and then maybe three extra sessions at, at one hour at um, what I was intending to ride for the hour, the, the power that I was hoping to achieve, which I might add, uh, the trainer on, on the, the power on the trainer was less or e- easier to produce than the, tra- the power on the track. And it probably comes down to the fact that I don't spend a lot of time in an aerodynamic position on the trainer, mm. and hence your power tends to be a little bit higher. So that is a significant point you're making there. So I'm intrigued that when you were on your trainer, you weren't sitting in your race position, you were sitting up a bit. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 
Yeah. Sitting, sitting on a normal road bike. Yes, okay. Yeah. So you're riding a different bike. Do you think it would have been more advantageous to ride a bike that was set up similar to your track bike? Um, I'm sure with less experience that that would be the case, but I tend to find that I could adapt uh, instantly to being on the track bike and into the aero position. But um, the neck and the, and the being in that position, I found very hard on the neck and the shoulders. And I think if maybe you did that more often, you may end up with, with uh, uh, an injury around the neck or the head position. So I was fairly cautious about not doing it too often. Knowing that I could sustain it for 60 minutes for me was enough. Mm. Therefore, adopting a different training position um, was important to prevent an injury occurring. And endurance-wise, how how big were any of your endurance rides, any long rides you were doing? How big were you getting with them? About an hour and one minute. <laughs> I thought you were going to answer that, and I, no. I still didn't believe it. But <laughs> yeah. I would just up, up the intensity rather than in, in uh, the uh, time spent on the bike. This is fascinating. So you were, everything was basically geared around 45 minutes to one hour or one hour, one minute. Yeah. There was I, think, I think all my friends joke that all my, all my times on the bike are one hour and one minute or one hour and two minutes. And that is all your training. This is, um, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. fascinating because you, you know, you, um, you'd be aware of um, the entire world's uh, you know, coaching philosophy at the moment is around, uh, based around 80-20 and it's you know, 20% hard and 80% easy um, in terms of your week. And so your model of um, training to feel and when you can train hard, train hard, um, completely defies that. Yeah, I think you, you've got to remember that I am 57 years old. I've had 16 knee operations and I think that that becomes what you model your training around, avoiding injury with what you've been through in, in the past and therefore I've, I've worked out a regime that my body can cope with and I know I'm not going to get injured with and therefore why, why would I experiment with trying to push that beyond the boundary where I may get injured and that, that would be catastrophic in terms of uh, preparation for an event like the hour. Consistency is definitely, uh, you know, the key to it, isn't it? Getting to the start line without having missed any, any of your training. Yeah. And, and finding what works for you, I think, is I've found the formula that works for me. And I, I think you know, other people will be different. But finding what works for each person is, is the key. When you, when you become a, an older athlete, a mature athlete, is, is, is fundamentally the, the important thing to, to tick off. I, I can imagine that because you are, you know, we're hearing the attention to detail here. Mm. That's what all listeners are hearing. I can imagine in your mind, in between sessions, you would be thinking, what if I could do a little bit more endurance? Would I be stronger and be able to push more power? I'm sure that's crossed your mind. Um, yet your total focus is no, that could actually injure myself. So I'm going to stay away from that. Is that how you've come around to the, 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 the program you've devised for yourself? Yeah, very much. Um, um, I meet people occasionally and they make suggestions and, and always that comes up, why don't you do some strength training? Um, why don't you train longer, do longer rides, do easier rides, have days off? And, and my attitude to that is, well, I've I found what works for me. Why, why would I change it? 
I've, I've managed over the years to attend the nationals in peak form and attend the world championships in peak form because I haven't been injured and therefore haven't, haven't I therefore been successful. Maybe I could be faster, fitter, better, but uh, I may also be missing events because I'm injured. It is harder to be faster than the world record <laughs> than your own world records. <laughs> and it's harder to argue with your results. Exactly. And, and what you said prior to my question was everybody's different and you've got to find what works for you. And that's pretty much the battle that every athlete uh, has to overcome, isn't it? And you're an example of this. As um, I, I've done a bit of coaching in, in windsurfing and to me the, the aim of a coach was to try and make each athlete self-sustainable. And that's how I've approached my cycling career is, is to be self-sustainable. And I get information from people who, who know more than I do, but then I, I, I try and adapt it to what's going to work for me. And that's always um, something I'm, I'm, I guess I've been successful because of, I've been able to do that well. On that exact note, I'd love to know um, what advice would you have for fellow age groupers? Because you said what works for you and it's absolutely shocked me that that is your training program um but it is proven to be highly successful and you just said as as dad repeated uh everyone is different but what advice would you have for an age grouper um training wise but even mindset wise um tempting their goals well i, I think knowledge is is key uh i i have a a, a sports science background so that puts me at an advantage to to use some of these um, theories. The hard thing is, is when someone you respect comes up to you and offers you counter advice, say, saying, no, I'm not going to go with that because I know myself better. So being in a position to, to, to know what works for you and, and not go with somebody else's plan is, is difficult to do, but uh, I guess you have to back back yourself, but you have to put yourself in a position where you have the knowledge and the experience in, in order to do that. So it's a process of, of, of doing it for long enough, listening to people, taking their advice on, evaluating it yourself and not accepting it just on face value. And potentially being willing to experiment and fail. Absolutely. Yeah. I've adopted some positions on the bike that um, I've been told they're going to improve me and, and yes, they, they, they've not been good and being able to evaluate that, recognise it and, and adopt something that, that is shown to be. I collect a lot of data and I evaluate data frequently. Mm. So I, I do it. I'm not doing it through an emotional level. I'm, I'm doing it very objectively. You couldn't have uh, hit any more of the boxes that uh, we love to tick from the very start of the conversation. You said, um, well, I have to have a goal, um, which is just so true for all athletes. You just find athletes can't aimlessly train. You, know, you, you have to aim for something um, all the way through to um, training principles and uh, even what you just said then, looking at data objectively uh, so that emotions don't get in the way. Uh, I, yeah, you just couldn't be ticking more things that has has to be why your attention to detail has led you to so much success. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt that that works, I'm, I'm sure. You, you have to have some ability, but you have to be able to use that ability well. It's, uh, it's really great that, uh, A, 
we have someone who really understands their own body um, and what the capabilities are and is willing to back themselves um, and experiment and and you know eventually get success and it it's you know it's not happened in a minute it's happened over a period of you know probably seven years of you working out from the when you very first change sports from you know from horse riding to windsurfing to cycling um what's going to be best for anna and and it's a it's a great example to everybody listening out there that you know there is no ceiling to what you can do if you're willing to prepare and plan and and uh, go and do the hard work and i just love your story it's uh it, it's you know it's someone with so much uh, self-determination and uh and goal setting and then backing yourself uh confidently that you know i will make mistakes but i'm going to learn from them and and be better next time and and that's what i love about the way you've gone about it is um, you're just so willing to to put yourself on the line and 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 have a crack and then work out what's going to be better for you so i think it's such a good lesson for everybody listening that um that you know anything's possible if if you're willing to do what it what the requirements are and and this is kind of up there with one of the the massive goals that not many people attempt this because it is so difficult to to achieve and you've done a lot of other things in your career um that are equally as good or if not better um but this is quite quite a unique thing and that's why it's uh it ex- it highlights and exposes um, how detailed you are as a person, and 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 I can't tell the listeners enough about that is what will make the difference between average Anna and successful Anna is is how much preparation you're willing to put in before you actually uh, get to where you want to go, and and you know this didn't happen in the first three months. It's you know you've ridden the fastest you ever have in in the fourth year of your attempt at this so that's a reminder to everybody also listening that you know you, you just can't take up a sport and expect to be the best at it after eight months um what advice would you be giving to people who are just starting their their chosen sport i'm not talking world hour records but you know from your experience as an athlete in three different sports uh, very successfully what what's your takeaway advice for everybody um Enjoyment. You, it, fundamentally, you you have to love doing it. If it's an everyday thing like cycling is for me, you have to really look forward to your time on the bike. If you're going into competition, you have to want to be there, not because somebody else is pushing you into that. Um, you you can't overlook that ever. Um, the, the the need to be selfish comes into it to some extent, as you said that it was. Um, uh, you have to be con- incredibly consistent with with looking at how you're going to train and, and meeting every single one of those training sessions. And sometimes that does make you uh, fairly self-centred and um, other things going around you in family life sometimes have to... Um, it, it's, it's not a trade-off that I was prepared to make easily. The tra- training did override most, most other things. But there's, there's, that's, that's, a, that's at my level. That, that doesn't have to be the case. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think fundamentally you, you have to do it because you, you want to and you enjoy doing it. And from that flow, flow the other benefits of, of the socialisation, the health, the health aspects of being fitter, stronger, 
and um, hopefully mental health as, as well is, is improved also. I guess one of our final questions is, will you go again? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> this, this age group has been ticked off. Yeah. No hesitation. Um, yeah. Uh, I sit ninth in the world of all-time women uh, currently. Um, most of the ones who, who are above me are in their 30s. Um, the, the thing that the pipe dream is to, is to go to altitude and, and have an attempt because I've, I've no doubt I could add a kilometre or maybe a kilometre and a half um, up at altitude. I was scheduled to go to Bolivia um, in 2020 just after I'd done the record. But COVID hit at that point and that abandoned that plan. But I will go up in age group in, in a couple of years, so therefore I'll be obliged to have another, have another go in the, in the new age group. So, what are you going to be doing in the, in between 57 to 59 uh, for those two years that you're waiting to go up? Have you got any other um, things on your mind that's going to keep you motivated? Um, I'll try and find a few time trials somewhere. Um, I, I've also developed an interest in, in the two-kilometre individual pursuit on the track, which to me is is counter to everything that I'm good at. It's It's two and a half minutes of very high intensity off a standing start which i'm i'm i take two minutes just to wind up and and, and you've got 30 seconds and it's all over so that, that is an incredible challenge but i also hold the world record for my age group in that so but i'd really like to knock some some time off off the two kilometer individual pursuit so maybe the next couple of years i'll see if my knees can stand up to some very high short efforts Sorry, just to clarify, uh, going up to altitude to complete the world record, that makes it easier because of the um, air density? Yeah, air density is, is drastically reduced, but of course the, of course the, the counter to that is, is there's less oxygen. So, But you think the, the la- less air density makes up for the less oxygen if you're fit? Oh, it does. I, I think if, I spent a lot of time looking at the records and there, there are very few exceptional records that aren't done at, uh, at high altitude. And the world record is able to be done anywhere as long as it's legal track with uh, officials. doesn't matter the altitude of it. Yeah. Well, obviously, you have to find an indoor velodrome somewhere. And, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Agua Caliente and uh, Bolivia is, is uh, the new go-to place. That's amazing. It is truly astounding uh, what you've been able to achieve. It's uh, remarkable beyond words. And as you said, to be ninth uh, in the world uh, fastest um, competing with elite women in their 30s it's just beyond comprehension what you've been able to do so congratulations again um one of the last questions we like to ask is uh what's a life lesson that you've learned uh, in the last 12 months doesn't even have to be about cycling uh, that you'd like to pass on to others um life lesson in covid times i guess that that's really dominated hasn't it so patience um being able to be be happy in your own body and, and content in your own company has been very important here we go, we're meeting well. It's finally <laughs> If anyone's watching the video, Anna did wonder us that she has a pet bird that likes yeah. to come and say hello. And, yeah. And, uh, just said hello on your shoulder. Yeah. And Wells, Wells my, uh, my coach, he, he sits on the bike handlebars most, most sessions that I do. <laughs> Yelling He's my at number you. one fan of my coach. That's great. Did you take Walter to the Bellodrome? No, unfortunately, we couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> He pre-recorded a little pep talk for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Any last questions from you, Dad? 
I wonder, Anna, do you, how long do you think you can keep improving for? That's a really interesting question. I keep expecting to go downwards. Um, this last year, I've, I've done as good a power over 20 minutes, over 45 minutes as I've ever done. Um, I can't work out why. So I, w- I would have said that, you know, maybe at, at, at 45 years of age, you would reach your peak and it had to be a natural decline. But it seems at 57, I'm able to do more than I did at, at 50, which I, I'm still finding it hard to, to rationalise that. I, I have to assume it comes down to experience and technique and uh, efficiency of movement. Um, there's no doubt, no reason why that shouldn't continue to, to improve. Obviously, it's a, it's a power to weight ratio sport. Um, you have to think about if, if you dropped a kilo, you might find another five watts of, of power not necessary and, and therefore that, in, in a sense, gives you a, um, an advantage. Um, it's not something I've, 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 I've looked at in the past, but maybe that, that would be the only way to improve in the, in the future. I don't know. Incredibly inspiring regardless be able to push in your best power ever and dad you're the same i always talk about it on the podcast but um, basically kept pushing your best power ever into your 60s so um, yeah it is an interesting question and we can't wait to see uh, how you keep going with it anna because it's done unbelievable so congratulations again uh, thank you very much for coming on this episode we know that the listeners will absolutely love this story and, and uh, take a lot of inspiration from what you've been able to achieve oh my, my pleasure and, and I'm, I'm happy to be in a position that is worth talking about. No worries. We'll finish there. Thank you very much for listening to this episode and we'll see you all next time.